This podcast is supported by YouTube. YouTube is home to a thriving creator economy where creators come to empower their communities, teach others, and turn their skills into successful businesses. In fact, research from Oxford Economics recently showed YouTube's creative ecosystem contributed approximately $16 billion to the U.S. GDP in 2019, supporting the equivalent of 345,000 full-time jobs. Learn more at youtube.com forward slash how YouTube works. This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Theodore Johnson wrote when the stars begin to fall because he has faith in the American promise, he says. It's the promise enshrined in the Constitution that all men and women are inherently equal. But one thing stands in the way of the nation living up to its creed, racism. What's needed is a more multiracial national solidarity, he says, and the black American experience has lessons on how to get there. Racism remains the thing that is the fault line between, you know, a nation that's possible and then the nation that we have and, and uh, unfortunately the nation that's been of, of our history. Today, he speaks with Citizen University co-founder Eric Liu about how the exceptional citizenship practiced in black America is a blueprint for unity. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Now. Author Theodore Johnson says racism is a structural crime of the state. While black Americans fought for their country in various wars, the government broke its end of the social contract. After the Revolutionary War, for example, soldiers were returned to slavery. Just like other groups that have been oppressed in the nation's history, black Americans have picked up lessons about standing together and fighting back. Johnson says those lessons should be used to extend the American idea to everyone. It's especially critical in an era when some groups want less inclusivity. They want America to be exclusive to them. Johnson, who's a retired Navy commander, speaks with Eric Liu about his family's multi-generational experiences with racism and how their long-standing optimism makes him hopeful the American project can be fulfilled. Here's Liu. I think I want to start with uh, a perhaps obvious uh, question, which is the title. W what is the meaning and the provenance of the title, When the Stars Begin to Fall? Yeah, so I mean, one, it's an obvious play on the flag and, and the stars on the flag. Um, and sort of at the end of the book, I sort of give away what I mean by the title um, by saying we had the opportunity to make sure the stars of our country either fall into place as we finally realize what a multiracial democracy could look like and, and achieve it, or they sort of fall out of the sky as the nation collapses on itself because we've missed this opportunity and, uh, and have created something other than uh, the, the thing that lives up to the promise of the country. But the title itself is actually a verse in a old Negro spiritual from uh, that, that enslaved black people used to sing. And it's uh, the lyrics are, oh Lord, what a morning when the stars begin to fall. And ostensibly what they're singing about is the rapture. You know, when, you know, in, in Christian theology, when Christ returns and people ascend to heaven, but what they're actually singing about is emancipation and liberty. 
And they couldn't sing about that outright because they were forbidden for demanding their own freedom or for even expressing the, the desire for freedom. And so they would cloak their desire for emancipation, for freedom, for liberty in Christian themes as a way of being able to sing their heart's desire without being punished for it. So it, it in this way, the title both talks about the opportunity before us, um, but it also talks about the way that the Black American experience has often um, been the, the spiritual uh, conscience of, of a country and, and in its will has, has kind of expressed the potential of a nation if it uh, manages to, to pull itself together and, and live up, uh, live, live its creed. You know, I, I, one of the things that just moves me and strikes me about this book and about the work you've been creating more generally in various publications uh, um, is the argument that the Black experience in America is not simply as a civic matter, the conscience of the national life, but that in many ways, it epitomizes what the nation could be, right? That, 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 that Black citizenship is in a sense, uh, the superlative expression of citizenship itself. And you use that term superlative citizenship uh, throughout the book. And I'm wondering if you could just unpack what you mean by that and, and in what ways, um, you know, Black citizenship has had to be forced to be by circumstance uh, superlative, what you mean by that, and uh, and what, um, you know, Americans of every background can and ought to draw from that now. Right. And so, I mean, one of the key things is that um, the, the book argues that the Black American experience has particular lessons that the nation would do well to to mimic and, and to, to uh, adopt itself in order to create a, a more multiracial national solidarity, but not that Black America has the exclusive answer, that we don't hold the key. We, like many other groups that have been subjugated or oppressed in our over our nation's history, have picked up lessons, ways of standing together, ways of fighting back, ways of, of uh, ensuring their inclusion in our democracy. And they, they all have lessons for the country. The, the Black American experience, though, has particular lessons given our particular history. Um, one of the, the attributes I talk about, as you mentioned, is superlative citizenship. And what I mean by this is um, it's a political strategy where a people who have been denied the rights that the government says it's there to protect still live their lives in, as exemplary citizens. That is, they fulfill all of the duties of citizenship and then some, despite the fact that the government is actually in breach of its end of the social contract. So in practice, this looks like uh, Black Americans escaping slavery, going to fight in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, for the nation's independence, for the nation's sovereignty, and then being returned to slavery after they fought for the country. And yet in every war that the nation has ever fought in, Black Americans have been there despite slavery being in, in, in existence, despite Jim Crow lasting for nearly 100 years. And so this is a kind of citizenship that is a claim on all the things that America promises, but has not yet delivered to this group of people. And this, um, this superlative citizenship exposes the gap between who we are and who we say we are as a nation, but it really exposes the hypocrisy of a nation that says it's a place where all men are created equal, we have these unalienable rights, and then those who are willing to literally give their lives for the country and these principles are not extended um, access to the full rights and privileges of citizenship. So superlative citizenship is, is a way of, um, of 
presenting spotlighting front and center the ways that the country has, the nation state has fallen short of its obligations to its people. I want to come back in a minute to the, the tensions that are inherent in that, um, in that choice, collective choice to embody superlative citizenship. Um, but, but before I do that, I actually you know, um, want to note, as you use the example in particular of the ways in which Black Americans have um, been at the front and the forefront in every one of the nation's wars, uh, you yourself are a retired Navy uh, commander. Um, right. and, uh, you know, and I think, I think from the Asian American experience um, that there are two kind of iconic heroic narratives coming out of the World War II uh, experience, an experience, of course, that after Pearl Harbor um, was marked, of course, by the incarceration internment mm. uh, uh, of Americans of Japanese descent. Um, but the, the two uh, kind of twin parallel right. entwined kind of iconic stories are um, one that you might identify, you would identify superlative citizenship, which is the 442nd Regiment, right? Th this was a regiment composed of Japanese American mm. soldiers um, who said, our country is denying us our civil liberties. Our country is treating us citizens as aliens, is rounding up our families and so on and so forth. And yet we shall enlist um, and we shall fight. And, um, and that is proportionately one of the most decorated units uh, um, uh, in the U.S. armed forces during World War II. Um, and, you know, the, the go for broke was their, uh, you know, regimental slogan. And that's one part of the story. The other is captured in the idea of the no-no boys. And the, these were people who, um, upon uh, incarceration and internment, um, were given surveys with two questions about uh, um, wh whether you renounce uh, uh, your loyalties to anyone else. And, uh, uh, and, and uh, I forget exactly the two questions, but they were basically loyalty test questions. On principle, many Japanese Americans who were just offended um, that their citizenship had been completely scrapped in the wake of Pearl Harbor checked no on both those boxes. Right? Um, no, I refuse to profess loyalty. No, I refuse mm -hmm. to fight for this country. Um, and um, and they were, of course, you know, marked uh, for particular treatment during during internment. And that's also part of superlative citizenship, right? Uh, you you use the phrase um, "stand together" or "fight back." Standing together and fighting back are right. part of superlative <laughs> citizenship, right? Um, and so I'm curious if you would say. Um, something as well, not only about the part of superlative citizenship in the Black experience that is about, okay, we've been put down, but we're going to keep showing up. We're going to keep enlisting literally in the armed services and figuratively in every other way. Uh, but also the part that's about, hey, screw this system. We're going to push back and dissent and fight back. And, you know, um, and, and do you see that side of things um, also in this frame of superlative citizenship? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and to your the examples of, of like the regiments you described, um, it's interesting that after World War II, the nation decided that Japanese Americans couldn't be trusted and needed to be incarcerated. But we were also at war with Germany and Italy. But German Americans and Italian Americans weren't rounded up. And so even in these moments where we decide the nation has had the most uh, the, the deepest expressions of national unity, racism has still managed to rear its ugly face, which is why the book argues, you know, racism is the threat to the American idea. And it's because of that, that uh, you're right, that the, the way to fight 
against it or to try to overcome it isn't just to show how compatible you are with America, but also to show how angry you are that America is not living up to its promises. And so the civil rights movement, the abolition movement, um, even rebellions during slavery were also expressions of, of the spirit of 1776, you know, the very thing that caused um, colonists to dump tea in the Boston Harbor or to decide that they wanted to go to war with Great Britain to declare their sovereignty. That's the same spirit that fueled the civil rights marches, Black Lives Matter today, Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the anthem, the abolition movement, um, rebellions on slave plantations, this unyielding desire for freedom, for liberty, for self-determination is just as American when it's expre expressed by subjugated Black people as it was when it was uh, expressed by Revolutionary War patriots. They are consistent in their um, in, in the fight for liberty and independence. And so uh, it, it isn't all roses. Sometimes the superlative citizenship are is the thorns of the bush. But um, the aim is the same, and, and that is to make the country be truer to who it says it is. Would you say that um, this this spirit you're describing is as much exemplified by um, the, you know, if you look back a generation, as much as exemplified by the Black Power movement uh, uh, as it was by King's, um, you know, uh, nonviolent uh, movement for for integration. I think so, but but to the extent that. Um, it was in service of improving the American project. Uh, and so I think there have been some protest movements that actually want to undermine the American project um, and create something entirely different. And so I, that, that is not the spirit of 1776. You know, that's, that, that, is, that might be a spirit for a kind of liberation, a kind of freedom, but maybe one that's not in consonance with uh, you know, the, the principles that are inscribed are enshrined in our founding documents. But to the extent the Black Power Movement, for example, wanted to address poverty, wanted to address education inequalities, um, wanted to prevent their people from being beaten by law enforcement and stopping abuses of state power, all of those things are consistent with our unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and all of these things are consistent with the idea that all of us are created equal. So in that regard, um, I have a dream that speech um, speaks to the same desire for our country as much of the black power activities of the late 60s and 70s um, in places like Oakland and other, other areas where they sought to, um, to, to improve the condition of communities when the state did not fulfill its obligations. You know, it's, it's notable, uh, it's both notable in fact and notable that it's kind of forgotten um, that some of the earliest charter documents of the Black Panther Party, um, in fact, I believe the founding document takes almost verbatim uh, language from the Declaration of Independence, right? That's right. Uh, it, it, and, and it is a direct appeal to what you've called it, not only the spirit of 76, but this idea of superlative citizenship. Um, and what is notable also about how that's forgotten is of course, uh, the movement changed and the, the, the posture of many activists uh, in, in that movement changed uh, toward it. And I, I fast forward to today and I think about, um, you know, so many of the, the younger generation Black Lives Matter activists who, whom I know and um, have learned from and worked with. Uh, and I wonder to what extent they would attach their current work to the language and the frame of we're here to deliver upon the American creed and the American promise um, mm. And uh, mm. um, that there's not necessarily that they wish to overturn it, but that they, they don't feel 
uh, necessarily as strong um, a visceral connection uh, to that promise, to that creed. Um, and, uh, and this is you know, a, a generational shift um, that transcends color as well. I mean, pe younger generation people of every racial background today have a less um, a pronounced attachment to the American idea. Right. Right. And that's not a critique necessarily. It's just a statement, you know, a report of kind of attitudinal fact. Um, what do you do with that? How do you feel like the argument you're trying to make lands with um, with younger ears? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it is. It's a quandary. And um, it's because a lot of the language I mean, look, frankly, a lot of the the um, the practice of being American, all the activities, the rituals, the words, the rhetoric, the songs, all of these things have been hijacked by those who actually want America to be exclusive to them and their group and not a more inclusive America that's that's welcoming. And so then when all of the symbols of the nation are hijacked, then the ideology seems to be tainted with the same thing that, uh, by the same groups that have hijacked the symbols. But there's nothing um, inconsistent with the idea that all of us are created equal with anything that Black Lives Matter wants or any of anything the young um, activists want. Uh, all of the unalienable rights in the Declaration, they want those things too. Uh, all of the protections in the Bill of Rights, um, they want those things too. Um, but when you represent those ideas in the Bill of Rights, the Declaration with the American flag, then suddenly it's a rejection of the groups that have claimed the flag for themselves. And then the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. Uh, and so what I try to do um, is to think about the United States separately from America and think about the United States as the geopolitical entity, the nation state that's governed by its interests, even when those interests are what we would consider unprincipled or immoral, even when those interests um, harm people and are uh, run counter to our professed ideals. But nation states aren't interested in your moral compass or these absolute versions of right or wrong. They are governed by the thing that makes them stronger or more stable or more prosperous, et cetera. But the America is an idea. It is all the promise. It's it's what we've been talking about, and and that um, is different from the nation state. But we use the term synonymously, and so in in trying to um, try to parse these things and and um, delineate between the two, I, my hope is that activists who just want America to live up to its principles to to, to fulfill its potential will see that. Um, that can't be hijacked. You, you, a white supremacist cannot hijack equality because white supremacy runs counter to equality. Um, you know, those who are invested in the status quo around social or racial hierarchies cannot hijack the American idea because it is the antithesis of the American idea, this, this type of, of uh, social hierarchy. And so in, in this way, um, when we detach the idea, the thing we've not yet achieved, but that we're working toward from who we actually are in our history and what different groups in the country want, I think we can let the idea remain pure and, and cling to it in a way um, that doesn't adapt all of the tragedies and negative outcomes and bad decisions of the nation state over the course of the nation's history. This is what Lincoln did with the Declaration and redefining it during the Civil War. This is what King did and I have a dream and sort of saying that there's a promissory note that we are here to cash. He's not saying that the United States has been perfect. In fact, he's saying it's been imperfect, but America is the goal. It's the, it's the, um, the North Star and, and that is what we should all be working toward.
I want to I want to probe a little further on this because I think between those two poles that you've just named, which is the ideals, the creed, which should be mm-hmm. claimable by a full spectrum of us, between that and the nation state, which, as you say, is full of a problematic history and problematic choices and policy actions and so forth, in between those things um, is a big important thing, and that is the people um, and the way that yes. we, the people, have lived as a society. And one of the things that I think um, is really important, you say right at the outset in your book, is that you know overcoming uh, racism and uh, and the kind of compounded effects of racism is not a matter only, and maybe not even a matter primarily of legal policy. Um, structural change, that it is in the first place a matter of uh, norms, mindsets, um, values, virtues, mm. attitudes, and so forth. Um, and that that conceptual point is made very plain when you get down to the hard demographic facts of we the people, which is that for most of this country's history, whiteness and Americanness were the same thing. Right. White people were Americans and Americans were white people in, in both the kind of default setting of our institutions um, and in the ways that our culture spoke of ourselves as Americans and um, and people like you and me were either not in the story, not did not have a voice or, you know, were exceptions that proved um, the rule, right? right. Um, but what we're living through right now is where whiteness and Americanness are decoupling, right? And, mm. and detaching. Um, and as that happens, the painful, awkward, bad faith reckoning uh, that's unfolding around our history in these fights around, for instance, the 1619 Project um, and these fights around what people are calling without knowing what it means, critical race theory, um, uh, you know, are basically, you know, the reactions, perhaps predictable reactions of a lot of white folks who felt like it had been their birthright um, to have Americanness and their whiteness be synonymous, um, pushing back against this a quick changing demographic reality that we the people are different now, right? And um, and so in this middle zone between the right. high ideals and the nation state, just how we deal with each other as a people in our everyday uh, stories and 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 interactions, um, we get to something that is um, more about ethics, values, character, and just the, the social choices we make every day, right? And um, you write in the book right. a lot about civil religion, uh, about uh, mm. that the way that the ideals um, actually come to life is in whether we as people in our communities, integrated or segregated, racist or anti-racist, how we actually show up for each other and with each other, and whether we can kind of create some structured ways to actually remind ourselves in our everyday dealings of the power of the creed. Are you actually hopeful in this moment of turbulence, that a diverse and inclusive enough uh, we can come together to grapple with those ideals? Um, or do you feel like we're in a time right now where the only people interested in that conversation um, are the people who don't need to hear it, right? The, uh, <laughs> the people who are already there, uh, right. the folks who are feeling, uh, you know, white folks who are feeling threatened by this change don't want to go there at all, don't want to talk about the applicability of the creed to everyone, and the, the imperative of inclusion. Uh, I'm hopeful, but it's almost, despite all evidence to the contrary, you know, like I, I, I'm, I almost can't help myself uh, in being this way. Um, so a, a few things, you know, one, 
one is that even when the country was founded, our idea or its idea of who was white or what whiteness was is different than what we conceive of it today. So there are lots of folks who we call white today who wouldn't have qualified 250 years ago uh, or 200, even 200 years ago. And so it's amazing how the idea of whiteness can expand, but that Americanness being synonymous with whiteness remains kind of constant. And so the people that the country embraces changes, um, but those who are excluded from it tend to have you know, still tend to be people of color. Uh, and, and so and, and so like the, the issue with Americanness being synonymous with whiteness is that even when whiteness expands, there's a group of folks that are always excluded from it. And that is not compatible with the, the principles, the ideals of the country. Exclusion on the basis of race or color is it, it doesn't fit. And so it's but the nation contorts itself you know, over time because of interest or, or whatever it may be, but racism remains the thing that is the fault line between, um, you know, a nation that's possible and then the nation that we have and, and uh, unfortunately the nation that's been of, of our history. And so I'm, I'm hopeful, but what I don't know is if, the, if we the people have the moxie to stand up in this moment and create the country that we want even when we, especially when we understand that it's going to require sacrifice and forbearance from all of us for people that we don't really know well, for those democratic strangers that make up the 330 million folks in our country. And so this is why I talk about the American civil religion in the book, because as Americans in such a large country with so many customs and cultures and regions and races and ethnicities and religions, et cetera, the only thing that unites us is the creed. Um, nothing else does. We're not a homogenous nation. And so if the creed isn't the thing that connects us, um, the only thing we have left is material interests like the size of people's paychecks and, and the cost of health care and, you know, the out educational outcomes. And none of those things are thick enough to have people stand in solidarity with one another across difference for over 300 million people, you know, because of paycheck inequality. Uh, it has to be in matter of principle. It has to be a cause of morality morality or of justice. And the American civil religion, I think, provides the, um, the, the foundation for how dissimilar people uh, in a large republic can come together and find connection and stand in solidarity because all of us are being cheated out of the promise by the nation state um, because, in, in, in my estimation, because racism is an easy uh, thing to exploit to keep the people divided instead of unified and, uh, and, and holding the government accountable. Well, I think that last point you just made is gets to the crux of it, right? I mean, when you speak of solidarity, what precedes solidarity um, is a narrative about your self-interest. Mm. Um, and you know, you're only going to stand in solidarity with with certain folks if you feel like it's in your self-interest to do so. And what this moment reminds us and what your book is trying to, you know, scream at us to see again is that on the one hand, self-interest is a permanent feature of human existence. Uh, we, we are self-interested beings. Uh, uh, on the other hand, um, our conception of what is in our interest is malleable. Mm, right. It can change, Right. Um, and uh, for a lot of this country's life, things were framed in a zero-sum way where, you know, 
I mean, you talk about the expanding definition of whiteness. There's a you know a fantastic book uh, called How the Irish Became White. Um, yeah. You know, and and the choice that those early waves of Irish immigrants had to make when they initially literally lived side by side with uh, uh, you know often poor free blacks in urban centers in the Northeast. Right. Um, and had a sense of solidarity with them that was about class and being outsiders. Uh, and then at a certain point, politically, culturally, they suddenly realized, oh, wait a minute, there's a faster <laughs> path to mobility. That's for me. exactly right. <laughs> I'm going to be white. <laughs> and, and I'm going to be not black. I'm going to be white. Right. And subsume my Irishness to kind of, you know, uh, emphasize my whiteness. Right. And that was a strategic, collective, unspoken, sometimes spoken choice made by those generations of Irish immigrants, um, but their conception of what their self-interest was shifted. It shifted from a sense of interracial class solidarity to um, a racialized notion of identity, right? And right. what you're pointing out to us is that it can change again, right? right. It can change it again in, in the direction of actual multiracial inclusion now to understand that we do have a shared interest in living up to the creed, that it's not a zero-sum thing to do so. That's exactly right. And, and so and, and this is why, uh, you know, um, we're, as you mentioned, folks are having debates about systemic racism and institutional racism, structural racism, what are and critical race theory, anti-racism, what do all these words mean? Um, but th that example of Irish Americans is a perfect one of structural racism. When once arriving here and, and being subjugated, oppressed, the structures of our society forced much of that group to make a choice. You can remain oppressed and have zero economic security, not much physical security, or you can, based on the way this society is structured, if you align yourself with this other group, now you don't actually make the promise more available to all people, but you get to help you and those like you. And um, and they took that path because it was a pragmatic decision to, you know, the, the, the cart nearest, the horse nearest to the cart. Um, and so this is the impact of structural racism. This is what, when your society is structured in a way that forces people to choose whose neck they will step on in order to stay above water, then you can never achieve the promise of the country. And so you're absolutely right. Uh, we can choose a different path. We can choose to undo those structures that pit us against one another and uh, demand the creation of structures or, or reforming the present structures to facilitate um, solidarity among the people. And at every turn, uh, we've often chosen not to do that. There have been some, I mean, the Civil War might be an example of a time where we've chosen to expand the conception of citizenship because it was in the nation's interest to do so. Um, but even that didn't endure past a decade or so. And, and much of that was undone, again, because of pragmatic political decisions and the way our society was structured that allowed uh, some folks to get ahead by uh, abdicating with their responsibilities to, to others. So th this is about choices. And, and if we expect those with political and economic power to just make the principled correct choices and help lead the sheep to, to, to drink, then um, we are not going to ever achieve the country that we want. And so this is why solidarity amongst the people is the only path towards a strong multiracial democracy, because the people across difference have to compel the nation state to make better decisions, to um, create our structures differently. If we really do believe 
that we want a nation that lives up to the creed. If the creed is just rhetoric, the things we say to placate people so that we can uh, oppress them and hoard the the, uh, the the largesse of the nation for the few, then that will be made plain and what results might be the United States, but it will not be America. It will be some other thing that uh, is, uh, looks a lot like the failed empires and nation states of the past that have tried this multiracial thing and not succeeded. This podcast is supported by YouTube. YouTube is home to a thriving creator economy, from farmers to barbers, chefs to fitness instructors, teachers to accountants, artists to woodworkers, and many more. YouTube creators are building legitimate businesses that thrive on and off platform. Many of these creators join the YouTube Partner Program, which pays them for the advertising that runs on their videos. More than half of YouTube's ad revenue goes to creators. The company has paid more than $30 billion to creators, artists, and media companies over the last three years. In fact, research from Oxford Economics recently showed YouTube's creative ecosystem contributed approximately $16 billion to the U.S. GDP in 2019, supporting the equivalent of 345,000 full-time jobs. YouTube's open platform is a home for diverse voices and has enabled creative Americans to both contribute to the cultural landscape and build economic opportunity for themselves and their communities. The YouTube Black Voices Fund is a multi-year commitment dedicated to spotlighting and growing black creators and music on our platform by giving them access to resources to help them thrive on YouTube. Applications for the YouTube Black Voices Fund are now open. Head to youtube.com forward slash how YouTube works to learn more. Well, you know, when you were speaking earlier about uh, civil religion, you you were literally preaching to the uh, converted because, (laughs) as as you know, you know, in, in the work that I do with Citizen University, we've really tried through structures of, on the one hand, ritual, but really structures of what you call civic friendship, Mm. Um, you know, invitations to people to actually uh, shift from being democratic strangers to actually being civic friends. And, you know, one of those ritual formats we have for that is called Civic Saturday, which is a a civic analog to a faith gathering. It has the arc and the flow and the feel of a faith gathering, even though it's not church or synagogue or mosque. Um, but it's centered around everything that you've been talking about here, around the ideals we profess to hold, the, you know, uh, forcing us to ask, what are we called to do to actually right. deliver liberty and justice for all? Um, what is that? How does that play out um, in South Seattle? How does that play out in Southeast mm. D.C.? How does that play out, um, you know, in Birmingham? How does that actually play out in the communities where we live? And the reason why we focus on that kind of ritual structure is that um, you know, you mentioned earlier, besides the creed, the only thing that binds us is an atomizing mass market capitalism uh, that makes <laughs> us think we are just little individual brands just bouncing off each other, buying stuff and being stuff and selling stuff. Right. Right. Um, and we don't have enough spaces and opportunities to come together and practice civic friendship, to practice even to feel what it would be like to be in solidarity with people unlike you. Right. First of all, say some more about what you mean by civic friendship and mm. what are the forms, either s- pathways and structures like Civic Saturday or other things um, that, by which we can actually cultivate 
those norms and habits uh, and virtues. Yeah, it's, it, you know, I, I mean, uh, all of the social science I've seen recently shows that we have basically self-segregated ourselves and uh, the neighborhoods that we live in, people that we live around tend to look a lot like us and the schools that our children go to, they tend to be very homogenous um, and um, our Facebook friend list <laughs> tends to be rather homogenous, you know, and I think that the last I saw was something like, 80 to 90% of Americans have only one person of a different racial or ethnic group in their immediate social circle, sort of the, that bubble of trust. And so we don't know one another. And so the way out, and it's, that makes it easy to exploit uh, group differences, turn people against one another. It's easier for people to believe stereotypes and caricatures about other groups, and they're less uh, capable of being resilient to those exploitive appeals that, that are looking to divide us. And so the, the way past this is to commune together. And this is, you know, Civic Saturdays, that's exactly what's happening. We are coming together across difference to get to know one another. And friends, you know, the friendship is, I mean, it could, it's about love, it's about, you know, sacrifice, respect, et cetera. But at the initial level, it's just about getting to know one another. The best thing we can do at this present moment is to get to know people who are democratic strangers and begin building the bridges to friendship. And that means, um, you know, talking, working together, uh, not avoiding confrontation, uh, being honest with one another, but being compassionate and being civil and being respectful and recognizing other people's humanity and dignity and assuming best intentions. It's and, and so all of the places where we can practice this, this is at the grocery store, this is at the PTA meeting, this is at church, um, in, in, the, in your neighborhood. This is where we be, can begin to heal the nation and forge stronger bonds of affection between people. I, I read a study recently that suggested that while lots of our institutions, traditional institutions have less, um, membership is dwindling in churches and Boy Scouts and bowling leagues, these sort of things. Um, it's not that people don't want the connection. It's just that they want a different kind of connection socially. And so things like running clubs and yoga clubs and orange theory and all of these, these things, um, our connections are now smaller and more transient than the traditional brick and mortar institutions that are, you know, stable and longstanding. So it's just a matter of um, uh, rethinking how we engage one another and then leveraging the new types of connection, the new types of engagement to form friendships um, that are durable when they're small and in small groups and when the, the groups are transient, instead of expecting friendship to look like it did a hundred years ago, where you have a community that's been together for several generations. And now um, just by the basis of, of a shared history now stand together in solidarity, a, a new model is needed. And I think folks like, like you um, are building models for how communities can move forward. Um, you know, I, I, you and I are both involved uh, as individuals and um, our respective organizations, whether it's Citizen University, my, my program at the Aspen Institute, um, you direct the fellows program at, uh, at the Brennan Center uh, for Justice at NYU. We're part of a growing ecosystem of organizations um, that are dedicated to some of what you're talking about here, to rehumanization of our civic life, mm. to depolarization, to bridging work, and so on and so forth. And one of the critiques that I think we are hearing um, as this work unfolds um, is that that's nice, but you're ignoring power. And you're ignoring mm. power differentials. Like it's nice to make friends with the person of a different race who you didn't know before, but that still leaves untouched um, the 
not only the structures institutionally, but the actual legal, political state frameworks that perpetuate uh, racism and compound the inequities of racism. And this comes to a different part of your argument in your book in um, where you talk about a rather provocative notion of racism, uh, not only as a matter of kind of individual or even collective attitudes, but racism as what you call a state crime. Mm. Uh, uh, and I, I think, you know, that, that is provocative and true uh, when you stop and think about it. I mean, and it's true on the obvious level of state sanctioned segregation and, uh, and things. But I, I think you mean something even beyond, you know, state sanctioned segregation and Jim Crow laws. You mean something beyond the black codes of the 1860s mm-hmm. and 1870s, right? You're talking about racism as a state crime uh, today in 2021. Say more about what you mean by that and how the kind of power imbalance that's perpetuated by the state crime of racism uh, can be un- unwound. Yeah, th- this is, uh, and so I think it was so key to um, the book, but also to our conversations about racism to think about it in, in terms of the structures that shape our lives. And so if we reduce racism to just how people feel in their hearts, then um, the only solutions we will ever come up with is to make people behave better, which is a good, I mean, that's not a bad thing. People should behave better and laws, regulations, they help people behave better. And yet voter suppression is still, a a thing, despite the Voting Rights Act, despite the 15th Amendment. And so legislation, regulations are never sufficient to completely reform society um, where equality is the goal, and especially when it's large and diverse. And, And so the argument is that the reason we haven't been as successful as we should be, given all of the struggles and laws and court proceedings, et cetera, that have have happened, is because the state has not done enough to rid its structures of the discriminatory effects it has against particular people, particularly people of color. When we reframe it that way, racism is not something that people of color and white people need to work out in a town hall. It's something that the state through the uh, traditional means like institutions and legislation, but also by by establishing a new set of social norms, um, punishing uh, behavior that's not acceptable, that's inconsistent with its principles. And the fact that it's not done that sufficiently and that it's allowed racial hierarchy to perpetuate suggests that it's complicit in its present existence. Um, And so when racism is a crime of the state, then it's incumbent upon the state to address it. And um, this is why solidarity among the people is required. And this uh, gets to your point about power. The only way power can be undone or power can be checked in this country is if the people stand together. Um, this is a nation where, uh, you know, I think it says in the Declaration that government derives its power from the consent of the governed. So if um, the, those who are governed are always bickering among each other and, and never come together per, to provide consent, then government kind of runs rampant. But when we do come together, um, then we do have the, the power to steer government toward the promise instead of away from it. But the bigger point is, and I sort of dug into all of the the political science and the international relations literature around crimes of the state. And um, when you look at the tenets, like this, this fits. This is a state that is actively preventing people 
of a certain race or ethnicity from enjoying the same rights and privileges of citizenship that other groups get to enjoy in much fuller measure. And even the group that enjoys it in a fuller measure is still not enjoying it in totality because racism underdelivers the promise to all of us. And instead, these, we are sort of fed these structures that are hierarchical um, so that people get uh, satisfied or complacent by being in relative superiority to other groups and lose sight of the fact that all of us are being cheated out of the country that we want and the country that we are, we are contributing to and working toward. And so uh, calling racism a crime of the state helps us uh, think about it in this larger frame and suggest that the only way out of this, the only way to check the power, the only way to re-steer the state towards a, a, a better pathway for the nation is solidarity across difference um, and uh, across the country. You are a, as I mentioned earlier, a Navy veteran. Um, you make appeals to patriotism, even patriotism properly conceived, and you unpack right. what you truly mean by patriotism. And you are making claims that are uh, inherently progressive. They are oriented toward non-complacency and making closing the gap between our stated creed and our ideals. And I'm wondering how, just in the even short weeks since your book has come out, but more broadly as you've been... Um, uh, you know, exercising your voice as a public intellectual on these issues, um, uh, how you have been navigating how the right and the left each take these kinds of issues, right? Um, there are parts of your argument and your background um, that a conservative audience could get and feel comfortable with. There right. are parts of your background and your argument that a liberal audience could feel comfortable with. Um, and that can be an asset, but that can also mean, uh, you know, uh, getting hit from both sides, right? And, right. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, what have you been experiencing and what lessons do you have, you know, not even maybe lessons, but just what insights do you have about what it means to navigate an increasingly binary political discourse when you are inherently doing something that is far more complex than binary? Yeah. So the, the first thing um, I always try to do is, is like define your terms. And this is something that I've I picked up from, you know, two decades as, in, as a military officer. Whenever you start planning for something or, or, you know, the first thing you do is let's define our terms so that we're all talking about the same thing. So too often what happens when you say a word like structural racism, it means one thing to those on the left and something completely different to those on the right. And there's never a conversation about defining what it means so that once the conversation ensues, everyone's talking about the same thing. So on the right, what I found is that when they learn that my book is not saying white people are the, the are at fault for all the problems in the country, and that the um, that white people alive today are responsible for slavery yesterday and those sorts of things, when they recognize that I'm saying, no, the state has actually not lived up to its obligations. And so if you're big on personal responsibility, I'm saying that even if I were to take personal responsibility for my life and all of these things, that I can't achieve the American dream in the same way that you can. I don't have the full rights and privileges of citizenship in the same way you do, not because you're bad, but because the state has, is not protecting me in the way that the constitution says that it should. Now we're talking about structures and now we're talking about the actions of a government and not about the way groups interact with one another um, at the grocery store or, or sort of, you know, in the abstract. So that's been helpful for me on the right. And look, I, I will also say that being a veteran, Sometimes those who would like to chastise the argument or critique it um, don't. 
And that's a part that I'm, I'm still learning how to navigate to, for, for people to sort of, uh, for, for them to recognize that it's okay to tell the, the guy who served <laughs> that you're wrong. Yeah. It's not, it's not unpatriotic, but that's how polarized the, the conversation around service and patriotism has become. On the left, I was actually a little bit concerned that they would think I was going too easy on people. And so the personal responsibility piece was the, uh, that's not something I feared from the right, but from the left by saying people should take more responsibility for how they're behaving in our society. So if we talk about something like white privilege, um, white privilege doesn't say that white people didn't earn the things that they have. It just says that their, their having it was an easier climb than my uh, attempts to, to also try to have that thing. Um, and so personal responsibility is basically superlative citizenship. And that means for Black people, one thing, but it means for white people, a similar thing, which is that it's going to require sacrifice um, if you want to build the America of our of our ideals. And this means recognizing that you have to take responsibility when you see unfairness or injustice. And even if you benefit from it, recognize that it's not consistent with the nation's principles and um, the nation we leave behind is probably going to be worse off than the one you inherited. And if that's what you'd like your legacy to be, then state that instead of saying that you're just being a good American by taking care of your family uh, to the exclusion of all others. Mm. You know, that idea that um, the the example of superlative citizenship now must be applied and embodied by white Americans, um, you framed it in terms of sacrifice and framed in terms of, you know, there might be ways in which um, people who identify or have been identified as white will need to yield or cede some advantage or privilege. Another way to come at that um, is to make the other argument that you're making about solidarity, which is less zero sum and more the idea that we're all better off when we're all better off. Yielding a bit is not a loss or a defeat for you. Yielding on this is a liberation for you from the idea that um, uh, we, we live in this uh, racialized society and that when we can actually all uh, enter in um, on these equal terms and you actually spend some of your capital um, making sure that folks, uh, everybody has a fair shot, um, that we become stronger as a society and, uh, um, and, and so forth, right? That, 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 that's, a, that's a different, at least rhetorical angle and it may not respond as much to the, you know, in a time of inequality right now, people think and feel in scarcity terms and zero sum terms. The, the pandemic only kind of uh, accentuated that, right? Right. Um, and so there are a lot of folks uh, who identify as white who are like, hey, I'm just taking care of my family and anything else is, um, you know, stop berating me, right? Stop, stop, you're making me feel like a racist. And, right. um, and, and <laughs> But, you know, it, it's an investment in posterity. Like that's what sacrifice is, an investment in tomorrow. Um, and if we're talking about civil religion or in religious terms, it's tithing. You know, a, a lot of people who like to run around saying freedom isn't free when they talk about the, the need to invest in a strong military. Well, paying taxes is not your only obligation to investing in the nation. It requires your time, it requires resources, and it requires faith in people that you don't know in your democratic strangers. So we, because we're a capitalistic society and kind of a doggy dog capitalistic society, you're right, we tend to commodify everything and think about it in terms of like of zero sum and in terms of like pocketbook uh, economics. But in, in things like equality, 
cannot be thought of in that way. You cannot hoard equality because by doing so, you are actually preventing equality from, from ever occurring. And so your, your investment of uh, not just tax dollars, but your social capital, your time, your compassion, your civility into other people who are different from you is an investment in posterity. It, it is the way you tie the inner civic religion if you believe in the promise. Um, and th there's no way around it. There's no shortcut. There's no tax breaks or, or credits. <laughs> this is this is only uh, the sweat of your brow. And in, in, in a nation that prides self-determination, we are a self-determining Public right now, we get to decide what the country looks like today. The decision we make today will decide what the country looks like in a decade and 50 years. And um, this is a, a challenge we cannot run from. And uh, we, we must accept the, the, the burden and the, the, um, the responsibility of making it better for the next generation. Well, Ted, um, your book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, um, is just a really powerful, provocative it's not only a, it's, I don't want to call it a playbook. What it is, is actually um, a mirror mm. to the selves that we can become. Mm -hmm. um, but it forces us to look uh, yes. and look more honestly than we often like to uh, as Americans. And um, you know what you just said, and in closing, I am brought to mind of uh, um, something that Mahatma Gandhi, um, I'm not even sure if this is apocryphal, but was, was said to have been asked uh, in an interview, what do you think of Western civilization? Uh, and he replied, I think it would be a good idea. Uh, uh, and, and I think of that because part of what we're saying is, what do you think of American democracy? Uh, mm. And what you're saying in this book is, I think it would be a good idea. Be excellent. And, and, you know, and the idea that the hopeful side of this is we alive today are trying, in fact, to deliver the planet's first mass, multiracial, multicultural democratic republic. Uh, it hasn't actually been achieved anywhere on earth yet, and it hasn't been achieved by us yet. Fully, exactly. Right? Right. Uh, and th that is the opportunity we have both for ourselves and, as you say, for our posterity. Um, and what is so powerful about your book and your example, Ted, um, is that, you know, you frame this in ways that uh, aren't sugarcoating it. It's a challenge. Mm -hmm. It requires some, you know, investment tithing, sacrifice, right? Right. Um, uh, and that is itself countercultural. This is not get civic quick as the equivalent to get rich quick, right? <laughs> right. Like, you got to work at this stuff, right? And, That's right. Uh, um, Ted, I really appreciate your example and this conversation and uh, good luck with, uh, with the book. Again, the book is called When the Stars Begin to Fall. And my guest has been Ted Johnson and uh, so glad to have this visit with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Theodore Johnson wrote, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America, which was released last month. Eric Liu is co-founder and CEO of Citizen University. He's also the executive director of the Citizenship and American Identity Program at the Aspen Institute. Their conversation was held in June of 2021. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's discussion was programmed by Aspen Ideas Now, and this show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. This podcast is supported by YouTube. 
YouTube's open platform has enabled creative Americans to build economic opportunity for themselves and their communities. Many creators join the YouTube Partner Program, which pays them for the advertising that runs on their videos. More than half of YouTube's ad revenue goes to creators. The company has paid more than $30 billion to creators, artists, and media companies over the last three years. Learn more at youtube.com forward slash how YouTube works.